Hi, this is the Social Jello with Angelo show. My name's Angelo. I'm a social scientist, surfer, martial artist, and a whole lot of other things. Coming to you live from Kasai City, Japan, the Social Jello with Angelo show. Hey, what's up, everyone? Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Social Jello with Angelo. If you haven't checked out my show yet、uh, as a podcast, I really recommend that you do. Um, of course, I love all my fans that like listening to this on YouTube. That's cool too.、Um, but if you are interested in listening to Social Jello with Angelo on the go,、um, I recommend that you pick up either TuneIn Radio or Last.FM. They're apps that you can download on your phone, they're absolutely free. And. You can just download them and listen to it on the go. Also, you can also listen to Social Jello at my website at www.socialjello.com. All right, let's get this show on the road. All right, so today I'm going to be talking about immigration. And the reason I'm, I even brought this up as a topic for today's podcast has to do with. A really good question that someone asked me. If you、uh, follow my Facebook at Jello Ferrer,、um, I tend to always post a lot of discussion questions. And one of the questions that I posted was What do you think about ICE? What do you think? Here, let me. <laughs> I don't want to mess up my own question, just in case you know what I asked last time. Word for word. I asked, I had it here on the computer, give me a sec. Ah, here it is. What do you think about ICE targeting families and splitting them apart in their immigration raids? What would be a better solution? And I had、uh, Tanya from South Carolina ask me, hey, Jello, or anyone with a legit answer. I hate what ICE is doing to families, but I honestly can't help but wonder why these people never became legal citizens. Is there cost involved? What is the government doing to keep these folks from becoming legal? Why can't we fix that? This is a really good question. And I know a lot of people. Oh, and for some of you that are listening right now, they're like, what is the, what the fuck is he talking about? What is ICE? Okay, I'm going to get to that.、Um, let me just tell you now ICE is,、uh, is an abbreviation for the US Immigrations and Customs Enforcement.、Um, It's kind of interesting when you look at it. It's actually not a it's a new entity. It, it wasn't around. A lot of people think that US Immigration and Customs Enforcement has always been around. Some people believe this and they get it confused with Border Patrol. They are not Border Patrol.、Um, in March 2003, the Homeland Security Act set into motion、um, the events that took place, and this was all a reaction to 9 11. Um, they used the hysteria. And it's funny because even in the, I'm looking, I'm reading word for word what it says on their, on their website. It says, one of the agencies in the new Department of Homeland Security was the Bureau of Immigration and Customs Agency,、uh, Customs Enforcement, also known as ICE. ICE was granted a unique combination of civil and criminal authorities to better protect national security and public safety in answer to the tragic events on 9 11. Leveraging those authorities, ICE has become a powerful, sophisticated federal law enforcement agency. Leveraging is a very interesting word、uh, because they don't have to follow a lot of the procedures that law enforcement has to follow.、Uh, they're a separate entity, they hunt down、uh, illegal. Immigrants, that's, that's, that's what they would say.、Uh, 
Um, more progressives would prefer the term undocumented immigrants. But aside from the identity politics, what it comes down to is this was sp supposed to be a response to 9-11. It was supposed to be a response to avoid terrorism. You know, they're, they, they, they looked at the situation of what happened, and a lot of people were scared, and they used that fear to push government policies that had absolutely nothing to do with fucking 9-11. I mean, I understand if they were going to, if they're going to, and I do, I'm not completely criticizing ICE. I'm sure there's a lot of things that we don't see. I'm sure there's some terrorists they must have caught. Some I'm, I'm sure there's, I know there's a history of terrorism that they've stopped. However, um, a large portion of the immigrants that they are targeting um, are mostly undocumented immigrants that are coming from Mexico. And, and it's funny because it's not just Mexico. It's people that come from south, from the border. Uh, people come from all parts of South America using the Mexican border. They're not all Mexican. Um, it's interesting that this conversation is always framed around Mexicans when there is undocumented immigrants from other parts of the world here, too. There's undocumented immigrants from London, from Britain. And it's funny, I was talking to a friend of mine who um, was residing in the U.S. and was residing illegally, and he was from Ireland. And he was telling me, um, you know, that he, 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 kind of, he kind of fell behind in paying for the payments and whatnot, so he had to reapply soon. But he never gets hassled, ever, because he's white, so they're not even looking for him. They're targeting brown people. This is, this is where progressives have a big fit, because, you know, we, that's racial profiling. So, uh, but before I even get into that, let's go a little more into this history and how this came about. So, in October, October 26, 2001, uh, George Bush signed the Patriot Act, and this, the, the Patriot Act is uh, an acronym for Uniting and Strengthening America by Providing Appropriate Tools Required to Intercept and Obstruct Terrorism. This act allowed to do things that was, you know, there were things in the Constitution that didn't allow, you know, you always, have, there's certain things you have to give people, you know, a jury, their peers, that kind of stuff. This kind of bypassed all that. Uh, the law was intended, in Bush's words, to enhance the penalties that will fall on terrorists or anyone who helps them. Um, but even though Congress voted in favor of the bill, uh, some people in America felt that the bill didn't go far enough to combat terrorism. And the law faced a lot of criticism. Uh, civil rights activists were worried that it would curtail domestic civil liberties and it would give the executive branch too much power to investigate Americans under uh, secrecy. And, uh, and they, haven't really, they didn't really experience anything close to this since 1960s and 1970s when the FBI were allowed to bug people if they felt that they were civil rights groups or anti-war groups. Um, even now, the Patriot Act is, has been has faced a lot of legal challenges by the American Civil Liberties Union, and in the most recent years, some members of Congress who had originally supported the bill, uh, they came to start to mistrust Bush administrations and his administration and their interpretation of the law. Um, but either way, you know, it was a Republican-controlled Congress which allowed it to be pushed in the first place. And you fast forward to this controversial bill and you ended up with people getting locked up. And a lot of the things that are happening now 
with the way ice operates uh you know they they literally have lines they'll literally wait for parents as they drop off their kids at school and ask them for their documents and if they find out that they're undocumented immediately deport them with the children coming out of school with no one no parents to pick them up remember this was originally supposed to be passed to catch terrorists that's what ICE was formed. It says it on their website. It was in response to the tragic events of 9-11 to prevent an event like 9-11 in the future. And it can be argued that what they're doing now has absolutely nothing to do with targeting terrorists, unless you consider these parents terrorists for just residing here. But I digress. Let's take a look real, real quick. Um, by the way, the information I just shared with you, that comes from the history.com. Uh, if you uh, look at my episode notes, all, everything I talk about is referenced and cited there, so you can check out these articles on your own. Um, so kind of going back to the history of immigration. And the history of immigration in itself is there's just not another word of saying okay i'm gonna i'm gonna read to you word for word real quick so like along first of all mexican immigrants used to be able to reside in the united states and just cross on over there was no paperwork required but by 1930 there was about 1.5 million mexican immigrants that lived north of the border and this started to kind of worry congress and this article is from the conversation.com if you want to check out the notes so as immigration surged, many people in Congress were trying to restrict non-white immigration. Um, remember, this is all before the civil rights era. So they were allowed to say things like whites only and a whites only immigration system in 1924. And it was a little after that that they came out with their uh, a new type of policy banning all Asian immigration. And this cut the number of immigrants allowed to enter the United States uh, from anywhere other than Northern and Western Europe. Does this sound familiar? Today? Maybe? Maybe not. But whatever. Um, Congress tried to cap the number of Mexicans allowed to enter the United States every year after that. Uh, Southwestern employers really objected because, again, they relied on... on on Mexican immigrants for labor, and U.S. employers had eagerly stoked the era's Mexican immigration boom by recruiting Mexican workers for their southwestern farms, ranches, and railroads, uh, as well as in their homes as uh, housekeepers and landscapers, and as well as working the mines. And by the 1920s, western farmers were completely dependent on Mexican workers. And this is not, not a lot has changed from the 20s into now. Um, but there were still some people that felt that Mexican immigrants would never permanently settle in the U.S., and that's why they were kind of pushing for that. And, uh, you know, what they were trying to, what they felt was that the immigrants would kind of just come work here and go home, back to Mexico. Uh, the idea that the Mexican immigrant often returned to Mexico contained some truth, and this is what kind of kept things going the way it did. However... Um, you know, as, as time passed, things started changing. Uh, Senator Coleman Livingston, um, who came from South Carolina, 
coincidentally, I, Tanya, you, I, I love you to death, and I know you have nothing to do with this guy, but I thought, you know, you, you're out there in South Carolina. This guy gave me that too. I didn't even know this. I guess I'm pretty much talking to myself. But um, Tanya's great. I don't know about this senator. But either way. Uh, in 1925, he entered Congress and committed above all else to protecting white supremacy. That was his declaration. And in 1929, as restrictive and employers tussled over the future of Mexican immigration, uh, Blease proposed a way to move forward. According to U.S. immigration officials, Mexicans made up about one million border crossings into the U.S. in the 1920s. So they decided to to kind of figure out a way to charge for this. They arrived at a port of entry, paid an entry fee, and submitted any required tests, such as literacy and health. So they started paying a little bit of money to come across, because before this, they didn't have to pay anything. But still, uh, some people failed to do this, and this was worrying them, so they wanted to pu push more po policy to take care of that. Um, some felt that this was unlawful, because remember, before this, there was no policy that said that it was illegal to cross. This was the policy that now said, okay, there should be a fine. For these people that are coming and working in America at the, at the farms and the mines, uh, we should charge them for coming now. They shouldn't just be able to cross work and come back. So they decided to come up with a fine if the people didn't pay. And this was, this was pushed by Senator Coleman Livingston Blease. And um, it's called Blease's Law. And that's what originally made being an immigrant illegal. Because this is where they had to pay a fee to come across. And if they didn't pay the fee, it was considered illegal. And they had to pay like a penalty for that. Um, you know, as times went by, by the end of the 1930s, the U.S. Attorney General uh, started to prosecute. And they, took, they prosecuted 7,000 cases of unlawful entry. And by the end of the decade, around the 1940s, uh, U.S. attorneys had already prosecuted about 44,000 people in using this. Mo Mexicans, they were going after Mexicans, specifically Mexicans, because, again, I talked about earlier how this was, a, this was a law passed specifically to go after people that came from Mexico, not their European counterparts. It was based on white supremacy. That's Blease's law. It's, this is all pre-civil rights era. Um... You know, as time went by, uh, the back then, in the 1930s, the U.S. Bureau of Prisons uh, was they were getting they were report there were reports that the majority of immigrants that were there were because of this Blease's because of Blease's law, and they were Mexican because they came across to go work to work, and they didn't pay the fa they didn't pay the fee to to come over. Um, before this, Mexicans never compromised more than 85 percent. Of prisoners right now Mexicans oh no yeah they went up to 85% after this law got passed 85% of all immigration prisoners were Mexican because of this law and um, you know as, as time went by you know it, it wasn't until maybe World War two that this is when uh, Mexican immigration uh, for the as far as the prison broom kind of peaked but, uh, you know, really, only after a few exceptions and prosecutions for unlawful entry and re-entry, um, the, the numbers kind of remained pretty low after that. Um, but, of course, all, this, ch again, changed 
when uh, after the whole 9-11 attacks. And George W. Bush and his administration uh, directed the U.S. attorneys to adopt an enforcement with consequences. And they kind of resurged back of what happened in the 20s. And this brings us back to ICE and everything else that, that we talked about earlier. So, again, like the history, the point of, of, the, of, of bringing up this article and some of the, some of the historical events is this idea that the history behind this is inherently racist. It was a whites-only policy that was passed in the 20s, and they just never got rid of it. So it's weird, you know, the whole how does a bill become a law, if you ever saw that little animation. Um, that's how it pretty much stuck. Uh, before that, it wasn't a problem. Now, some of you might be saying, well, still... It costs a lot of money, and you know progressives don't want to talk about how much money it costs, and I'm sure it does. And there's there's a certain amount of money that it costs to people, but one thing I kind of want to talk about, going back to Tanya's question about you know what is the government doing? Is the government obstructing people from becoming legal, and why don't these people ever become legal? And I think that's where. Um, that's where that's where things got, kind of get funny cuz like kind of using my own personal story. Um I'm 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 Puerto Rican. So I was born a legal citizen of the United States. And there's some misconceptions that people have. And I'm getting this from a I'm getting this from an article called The Cost of Immigration to the United States. It was written by Ines Belina. She shares her story of how she became a US citizen. And I'm going to kind of, I'm going to mirror this story with my story of my wife, who's Japanese, and how she became a U.S. citizen as well. And actually, no, she never really became a U.S. citizen. We'll get to that part in a little bit. But here's, here's what happened. So here's some misconceptions that people have. Uh, some people believe that you get citizenship as soon as you marry someone. Not true. Um, you get permanent residency as soon as you marry someone. Also not true. Um, only citizens pay taxes. Not true. Only citizens and residents pay taxes. Not true. Citizens and residents are the same thing. Not true at all. Residents and international students are the same thing. Not true. And what's and so just with that little fact, and these these are facts from the article. Let me tell you about what happened. So my wife came to my wife came to America from Japan, and um, her family actually has money. And they paid the three hundred and sixty dollars. Uh, there's two fees you have to pay for the visa applications, one hundred and sixty, and there's another application called the Sevis fee that you have to pay. That's two hundred dollars. So it comes to a total of three hundred and sixty dollars, so that she could come out here and go to college. She came as a college student. Um, as a college student, she in, she enrolled into California State University, and she had to pay four times the amount of tuition. Because she is not a resident, so if you come to America and you're not a you're not a U.S. citizen or you're not a resident, a California resident, your tuition fees are quadrupled. So she paid those outrageous fees. Um, and remember, all this money—it's it's a state-funded school, so this money is going straight to the state and to the school itself. So this is going into the U.S. economy in multiple different ways, directly to the U.S. government because it's a California. It's not a private school. Um, so she did that. She paid the money. She continued to pay the fees as she stayed out here. 
Um, she eventually decided to petition to become to try to get her green card. And to get her green card is when she married me. We got married. Um, I still have to do a podcast on how I met her. It's, it's, it, it'd be, I really want to share that with all of you, but just, just to not go into a giant rant and try to stay on point. Um, we fell in love. We got married. And uh, when we got married, that allowed her to apply as a resident. Now, first you have to petition. You have to petition for it, which is a for, which is an I thirty fee, which is four hundred and twenty dollars. And then you also need to do a biometrics fee. It's an application to register as a permanent resident. That's a thousand dollars. So that came to about a thousand four hundred ninety around there, on top of the other three hundred that she paid earlier, right? So now we're about almost two grand. So as time went by, um, finally, you know, not finally. So we stayed, and then they still had to pay. We we have to pay. I think it was like every five or ten, five every three. We, 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 like you can't apply for the permanent resident. They have to. You have to like every five or ten years. You have to pay again another five hundred and ninety dollars, and and also the lawyer fees came to about six hundred, and it came to like a grand total of about mm, about four grand, about four grand. Now here's the kicker. We paid all this money. We we hit about four thousand dollars in fees, and after all of that, we decided to move back to Japan. Um, and I, if you listen to my other podcasts, and you're wondering why did you move back to Japan, she had older parents, and we were also having she was having infertility issues, so we went back to Japan because Japan has really great healthcare services, and they had a really great infertility program. That and I can do a completely different podcast just on the cost of healthcare, but it was pretty much for affordable healthcare. We came to we came to Japan. This was all. This was back in 2013. So, long story short, we came back to Japan, and then I thought, well, hey, we're in Japan now. Um, and then and then America warned her. Oh, America, we got a, we got a letter from immigration. Hey, you're living in Japan now. This makes it so that you can no longer become a citizen. We just paid the fees to become a citizen. We paid the six hundred and eighty dollars for you know for the naturalization. They said no, you know you have to reside for fifteen years um, after you applied for the first uh, green card. You have to reside for like fifteen years or ten years to be able to qualify for that. And since you left before that, now you have to start all over again. And we had they wanted us. We and now we have to pay. We're gonna, and we did. So I went back and we had to pay. We had to pay uh, another one thousand seventy dollars to the immigration, so we hit six grand. Yeah, well, five grand, five grand. We're at four grand, right? We hit about five grand, and still paying. They told us, yeah, you. She can never become a U.S. citizen because you both, even though you're both married, and I'm a U.S. citizen, you're residing in Japan. So for her to become a U.S. citizen, she has to reside in America. You have to live in America to become an American. So. We're pretty much gonna pay a thousand dollars every five or ten years, and then I asked immigration. I said, "Well, can, what happens if we just don't pay it? Like, she doesn't want to become a U.S. citizen anymore, right? <laughs> Fuck it. She's a Japanese citizen. I'm an American citizen." And then uh, <laughs> I, I said this to ICE. I was talking to ICE, U.S. Customs, at the airport, and I asked them that, and the the, the officer laughed and said, "Well, yeah, you can do that." But one of these days when you come to travel here, um, you know, they're going to pretty much arrest both of you <laughs> and then you'll have to go to court 
and they're going to charge you the court fees plus the thousand dollars and you'll have to pay both of them um if you do it that way and it's easier just to pay the thousand dollars so that you don't have to end up being arrested so pretty much you know i gotta pay for my me my wife for the rest of my life because until we go decide to move back to america in the unforeseeable future i don't know when that's going to be so that's just my story and i'm just lucky like i i, I responded to tanya on on facebook about this and i just said you know i'm just lucky that i have a good job I have a, you know, I was lucky enough to to make it and get a good education and and have my masters and work my way through. Went through hell to get it. I'll I'll do that in another podcast one of these days. But um, yeah, a combination of luck and a lot of hard work um, allowed me to make comfortable. I'm I'm not a millionaire or anything, but I make enough money to pay all these fucking fees, and and I don't. I can't complain too much because, like I said, I look at it as a trade-off. Uh, I live in Japan. Then she asked, well, how much did you pay to become a resident of, in Japan? 200 bucks. I paid 200 bucks, Tanya. If I include the airfare here, it hits 1000 So if I, if I, you know, because we're married. So Japan's like, oh, you're married. Okay, yeah, boom, bada-bing, bada-boom. Um, process the paperwork. I became a Japanese uh, resident for $200. Um, I could have opted to pay the $100 one. I paid the $200 one to have it for 15 years. Uh, yeah, that included the biometrics and all the other bullshit that they use, all the other terminology that they use for the U.S. immigration. Japanese immigration said, you're married. End of story. They were more concerned about whether we were legitimately married. We showed them a copy of our, oh, yeah, I had to pay another 50 bucks to have my marriage license translated. So 250 bucks. Tops. Tops. If I include the gas to drive to the place, I can hit maybe three hundred dollars. Three hundred dollars versus five thousand dollars and counting for the U.S. Oh, by the way, I don't have to pay the fee anymore. I'm done. I think for another fifteen years, I can apply for the permanent resident. Or am I? No, no. I made it for the permanent resident. So I already paid one hundred dollars to come here, and the two hundred dollars for the permanent residency finished. I no longer have to reapply. No more money given to the Japanese government outside of my taxes. Um, yeah, immigration finished 300 bucks, maybe 400 if I look at the first fee, right? Um, and for my wife, $5,000. And like I said, counting, I don't know when that's going to, they pretty much told me I'll pay for the rest of my life until she stays in the, and then when we go to the U S we've got to stay there for 10 years. She can't go, she can't come back to Japan and live. She can only come and visit. Um, and then then maybe, if I qualify, <laughs> I won't have to pay the other $1,000 every 10 years, whatever. So yeah, and that's just my situation, right? So when you think about the, the dreamers, and this is from USA Today, uh, the 3.6 million dreamers. Who are the dreamers? Dreamers are people that came to the U.S. Um, their parents came as undocumented immigrants, and their children were born in the U.S., and they're legal residents. They're legally U.S. Uh, citizens, but their parents are not. So these are the parents that ICE are taking away and taking them, leaving these kids or as orphans. And so you think about these people that came over here, and yeah, okay, philosophically speaking, psychologically speaking, this has a lot to do with uh, with moral reasoning. If you look at if you Google moral reasoning in Kohlberg, it'll, it'll have the 
I did this, the Hans Dilemma, the Heinz Dilemma. If you check out one of my earlier podcasts, I talk about this. But it's this whole idea of what do you value more, like this idea of black and white justice or actual justice because you think about people and how you would fit in their shoes and you use a little bit of empathy. And um, like this is really along that dilemma, right? This idea that um, what would you do if it was your family? Like you're already over here, you're a kid. You didn't choose to be born. You were just born. So what are you going to do? There's 3.6 million of them here. Um, people talk about the DACA program, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. This is what the right now is being thrown around in, in the debates between Republicans and Democrats. But they're only talking about 800,000 kids that, that were accepted into the DREAMers program. They're overlooking the other 3.6, well, 800,000. So they're still... They're still overlooking about two point, damn it, <laughs> damn it, 2.6 million, I think, about 2.6 million um, undocumented immigrants that are here that did not get accepted into the, into the DACA program. These people were not accepted, so they continued their status even under the Obama administration. So kind of looking at that, roughly you put all these people together, there's 3.6 million people that are here in the U.S. that uh, are U.S. citizens, but their parents are not, and they're trying to figure out what they're going to do for their future. And, you know, Tanya asked a really good question. Why can't they become citizens? Have they chosen to? Well, here's a problem, right? They came to the U.S. because they didn't make enough money in Mexico. Um, so they were already having problems in Mexico financially. So they came to America to have a better life, to make more money. Yes, they came undocumented. No, they, many of these people did not cross under the border. Like, oh, they, you know, they want to build a giant wall because they're hopping. You know, they got the best Olympic pole vaulters in Mexico, and they're pole vaulting over the fucking wall. No. Um, actually, a lot of these people came over legally. They came over, they paid the fee that I mentioned earlier that was brought about by racist policies in the 20s. They paid the fee. They came across. They kept working for their employer. They just didn't go back. After they came over, they got an apartment, all that other good stuff. And then if you're asking yourself, well, why didn't they just get their visas through their, their employers? Well, because their employers would have to spend about $3,000 per employee if they were to do it legally. So their employers just kind of played negligence. Oh, well, you know, we'll just pretend like you're still crossing the border and coming to work for me. And I, it's funny because I talked to a business owner who wanted to make one of his he was in that situation. He had a small small business. Uh, he incorporated it, and he had uh, he had an undocumented worker, and he was trying. He well, he really loved him and his family, and he got caught by ICE, and they were deporting him. And he really wanted to know what can I do? What can I do to to fix this situation? And the legal fees went well over five thousand, six thousand dollars because of back payments and back fees. And he's like, I can't afford to bring them back. And then he said, don't worry, I'll come back. And he did, right? You know, he found his way to get across again. But that's kind of the problem. Is like, even if they do want to come back, because they've been here for so long, they have back fees, back payments. The, the $3,000 that I would have ended up paying for my wife jumps to like 6000 Their employers can't afford to pay the fees, because if they were to pay for the fees for everyone, then... You know, then they can't. They just can't afford it. It would. It would hit their. It would hit these small businesses too hard. Farmers don't make that much, or and the small businesses that hire these people don't make enough. Maybe arguably they do. 
Some people will say, arguably they do. They should take the hit. Maybe you're right. But um, just looking at it, right, they're already here. And if they were to be sent back, they'd have to go back. If they wanted to legally do it, they'd have to go back. They'd have to quit their job. They'd be unemployed again. They're already not exactly rich people here, right? We're talking about people who are immigrants who probably make under under 20000 if they're lucky, $30,000 a year. Um, now they don't have the money, right? The money is not, it's not like they have this money and they keep it. It's like they have their families and they take care of their families. They have rents, they have rent, they have bills. It's not like they can just save up six grand or eight grand to pay back fees to go back to Mexico, to wait around at the border, to apply for the visa, to... To, and they don't, if they apply, it's up to the immigration. Immigration might look at it and be like, no, you, you came here illegally. We look at you as a criminal. And there's another law through the Patriot Act that says that if you're a criminal, you cannot become a U.S. citizen. So they, they look at it and they're like, you know, we feel that you coming over here illegally and staying for so long makes you a criminal. And we got you have a criminal record because of it. And yeah, you just can't become a U.S. citizen. End of story. Because... You did that. That's after they paid the application fee, by the way. They have to pay the back fees, pay all that crap, just to have the government, at the end of it, look at their file and say, no, we're not going to let you. Thanks for the three grand. Then what? What would you do? That's where I pose it to my listeners. What would you do? That's the situation you came in. You, You were in a bad situation. You had a job. You crossed over, you're already here, what would you do? Would you go back? Would you spend a year or more without your family and gamble that? So when you look at the immigration issue, it's not just about this idea that there's people here. Oh, remember, they pay taxes. They pay taxes because they're still registered. They still... They still have to. They have to have. They still have all their paperwork done. They're just undocumented, so they still have driver's licenses and social security. They apply for all these things, um, but most of them are terrified to ever ask for anything of the government because they know they're undocumented. So they don't. They don't get welfare or anything like that because well, guess what? They're not U.S. citizens, so they know this and they're afraid that if this, they don't want to bring any unneeded attention. So they pay. They pay taxes. They they have um, they ha- they they register with the government. The government knows that. that how do you think there's? How do you think I got the number three point six million? Because the government knows that there's three point six million undocumented immigrants. They know because these people are paying them taxes, so they're making money off them. I don't know. Uh, the solution doesn't seem to be real. Doesn't to me, in my opinion, the solution doesn't seem to reside within the individual. It seems to reside within the government. Uh, I think it would cost the government because it costs the government money. It costs the government, I think, about two or three grand, four grand or more, to deport someone. Right? The ICE program is not cheap. I think it would be cheaper. I'm not a policyholder. I don't know. I don't know what. I'm an independent. I'm not a Democrat or a Republican. But I think um, as a entrepreneur, business owner, if I had a problem like this, and I'm running, I'm running the most powerful country in the world like I'd ever have that, don't want it. But either way, 
I think the best solution would be to try to, if you already know who they are, you already have their names, rather than deporting them, if this is about money, come up with a payment plan, come up with something reasonable. Immigration is not reasonable. The fact that I have to spend $1,000 every 10 years for my wife because I don't live in the U.S. is unreasonable. Immigration itself needs to become a more, it's a, it's a for-profit business. They really need to come up with a reasonable payment plan something that makes sense for people that want to be in the U.S. and for people that don't want to be in the U.S. like my wife. And they need to figure out how much they're going to charge and how much money they actually need for their program. And this would fix everything, you know, rather than trying to raid families. And, you know, think about it, right? When they raid these families and they send the parents home and the kids are here and they're U.S. citizens and they're stuck here in America, right? When we have to now, it's coming out of the taxpayers' dollars. We have to pay for the orphanage, you know. We have to pay for their for their adopting and foster care. So it would make more sense to look at how much money that we spend on foster care for these kids, and no one wants to bite the bullet, especially business-minded people. So don't bite the bullet. Come up with a reasonable payment plan. You know, give them an opportunity to document them or document them yourself. You're the government. You know who they are. Start it up, set it up, and they're paying taxes. Come up with a little tax fee. I don't know. There's an organized way to handle it. The way it's the way it's being handled right now, and the way it's been been handled, it seems completely irresponsible, and uh, and it just seems like a giant waste of money, in my opinion. So, Tanya in South Carolina, thank you for asking such a great question. I really enjoyed answering it. Um, again, Social Jello once a month. You can check out. Uh, you can check out my stuff on the website, as I mentioned earlier, at www.socialjello.com. I've been doing this for almost three years now because I like to. But it's always nice to get some money. So, if you go to my website and you shop from Amazon. Just click on the banner, shop, and I get some dough. Not much, but it makes me happy. Thanks for listening. I hope y'all have a great week. I'll catch you later. Peace.